So there are always, for those of us who live on this earth, choices that kind of become defining moments for us. Um, in fact, at first, they seem to be pretty small and insignificant, but in the long run, they can become extreme defining moments for Jesus. Um, I grew up in the church, uh, like some of you did, and so for me, it was uh, August of 1972 at Glendale Christian Church in Springfield, Missouri, where I walked down the aisle and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I remember standing in front of that group of people, um, confessing my faith in Jesus Christ, um, being baptized into Christ. That was a decision that seemed insignificant as a kid, but was a defining moment. Um, it was a few years later. Um, it was March of 1978 in which um, I came down the same aisle uh, at the middle of a crusade and I said, I think Jesus is calling me to be a preacher. It was a defining moment. Of course, then there was May of 1981 when I asked Patty Meeks to become my wife. That changed my life forever there. But then there's other defining moments. I remember um, the moment, I think it was January 1982, when we decided that we would always give 10% of our, offer, our, our income to the Lord, no matter what was happening in our life. Um, then there was this decision that we made to move up into the Chicago area, to this little bitty church, and little did I know the profound impact that decision would make, both good and bad, in our life. I remember, I think it was the spring of 2011, where I made a decision to get in a car and to take a drive and have a conversation with somebody so important to me. Uh, it was February of 2013 that I made a phone call that made a huge impact and difference in my life. So we all have these small decisions, some decisions most nobody else knows about, but they become these defining moments in our life that Jesus takes and uses in our life to make a profound difference for every single one of us. And so some of you know what I'm talking about, these kind of radical changes in our life that come from small decisions. Maybe for you it was, you know, a relationship you started or one you ended. Or maybe for you it was a decision to move somewhere or to say I'm sorry. Maybe for you it was a decision to get a different job. Maybe for you it was a, a decision to seek forgiveness from someone. Small choices that at that moment maybe didn't seem all that big or significant, but they became these kind of radical choices that were defining moments for us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. What God wants us to understand is that being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, means that I am ready at any time in my life to make a choice for Jesus because he wants me to that could ultimately become a radical decision for Jesus impacting me. So today we're finishing up this series called All In. We're talking about a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, which is what we're doing this year, as we read through different passages that we see about Jesus, he has some pretty hard passages about what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
So week one, we looked at this passage which says, you know, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And we learned that every morning, what do we have to do? We've got to take our agenda, our plan, our dreams, and we wad them up and we throw them in the trash can and we say, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Then week two, last week, we took a look at this passage where Jesus says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Another really hard passage about discipleship, but what we learned is that no matter what, Jesus must always be the priority in our life. He must always be first in our life. So today we come to Luke chapter 14. I encourage you to open your Bible and turn to Luke 14. There's Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can use your phone or your tablet. Um, you can scan that QR code there, and it'll take you to the Uversion app and to help you to be able to find the passage there. But today, what we're going to learn from Luke 14 is that we get to say goodbye to being in control. That Jesus is king, I'm not king. And so where we're going with this today is simply this, that we are either in radical partnership with Jesus Christ, or we're in rebellion against God. Either it's radical partnership with Jesus or it's rebellion against God. And it's going to be a challenging message. This whole series has been challenging. If I'd known it had been this hard, maybe I wouldn't have done it when I knew that. But it's, it's, and today is no exception to that. In fact, my hope for you today is that you will make even a small decision that God is leading you to make that will become a radical choice, a radical change for you today. So I'm going to read in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 25. Those of you online, I encourage you to have your Bibles open and follow along. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Um, Luke writes this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning them to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person, now I want you to read these words with me right here, cannot be my disciple. And he goes on, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, say this out loud with me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, say this with me out loud, cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear." So what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You notice, because I had you read it out loud, that phrase three different times. What is that phrase? You cannot be my disciple. It shows up three different places. It shows up in verse 26, 27, and 33. And what's interesting about this, you cannot be my disciple, 
is that word cannot kind of has the, its root in the word power. It's, it's this idea that, not that it's hard or challenging or difficult, but if you don't make these choices, you do not have the strength. You do not have what it takes to be my disciple. You are not sufficient. And that's a huge challenge as we look at what these are talking about here. And one of the questions that I've wrestled with in this series is, can I be a Christian and not be a disciple? I don't know if anybody else has thought about that. Can I, can I be a Christian without being a disciple? In other words, can I get the you know, free get-out-of-hell card without having to do all that crazy radical stuff, right? Can I be a Christian and not be a disciple? And we talked about last week, Jesus never used that word Christian which I found to be very intriguing. He talked about being a follower or coming after him, or he used the word disciple, but Jesus never used that word Christian. So what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who belongs to Christ. A Christian is one who has surrendered to Jesus as Savior, right? He saves me from my sins, but also as Lord. And you can't have one without the other. And so I want to encourage you to wrestle with that question. Can I be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so that cannot be a disciple gives us three different areas here. The first one is the area of relationships. Look at verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person, say it with me again, cannot be my disciple. So can Jesus really mean I'm supposed to hate my family? Is that really what Jesus is talking about? Because that doesn't really kind of fit with some of the other things Jesus taught about. You know, um, he even tells us to love our enemy. So now he's telling us to hate our family. Well, when you study the Bible, you always have to kind of pay attention to the language that's used there. And so Jesus is intentionally using you know, hyperbole, or he's using exaggeration language. One, one commentary called it comparative force rhetoric, meaning Jesus isn't telling us to hate our family. What he's saying is, in comparison to how I love Jesus, it should almost look like hate towards my family. It's a comparison there. In other words, what he's saying is, not to hate our family, but that anytime there's a choice or a decision between my family and what they want or need and what Jesus expects me to need uh, to do, right? Because sometimes there's a conflict. Who wins that decision? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, Jesus always wins that decision, no matter whether it's family that we happen to love dearly. And we talked about... Uh, was it last week or the week before, that to make a decision for Jesus Christ in the first century for some people meant making a decision against family. You know, if you were a Jew and you chose the Messiah and nobody else in your family did, you were making a family uh, a choice to be ostracized by your family. And there's some places in, in the world today you make that decision and you're making a decision against your family. Some of you have even experienced that personally for yourself. And so as we wrestle with this particular choice, we realize, you know what? Family ties can create some tension in regard to being a disciple. I mean, you can't, 
you know, try to make a living and try to love your family and try to care for them and meet their needs without periodically experiencing this tension between what Jesus really expects of me as a disciple and my responsibility, you know, to my family. And so we have to wrestle with that. But what Jesus says, if I don't come first in your relationships, you cannot be my disciple. The second area is that of self. He says this in verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, say it with me again out loud, cannot be my disciple. Now we, we learned that in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus Christ, that if you uh, were in Jerusalem and you saw someone walking through the streets with a big bar on the back of their neck or even carrying a cross, what did it mean? That they were on their way to die. That you knew it. You understood that. And so the language is pretty plain here. Jesus is saying to carry my cross means i got to be willing to give up my very life for Jesus. I mean, in those uncertain terms, he wants us to know he's not looking for lukewarm followers of his. He's not looking for people who are wishy-washy. He wants people who are willing to give up their very life to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to sacrifice their life. That's a very radical decision. But for most of us, we may not have to make that decision. But what's a decision we have to make every single day? Every day we have to make a decision to die to ourselves, right? To put ourselves on the lower burner. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a daily choice that we have to, well, I'll say this. For me, it's a daily choice that I have to set my ego and pride and my selfishness aside. And it's like every, every single week, it, it's like I feel like I'm doing better, and then something comes up, and it's like, even this week in my reading in the morning, there was a couple of different passages of Scripture that it just felt like God was saying that directly to me. I, you, know, you know how that is. You read the Bible so that God can speak to you, and then you pray so that you can speak to God. And so I was letting God speak to you, and he said this in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. He says, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. And I thought, well, that's a terrible verse. I don't like that one at all. And then, a little bit later, Psalm 147 and verse 6. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. I don't know about you, but I, I wrestle with this all the time. And this ego and pride shows up. And to, you know, die to ourselves doesn't mean I say to myself, I'm worthless. I have no value. God loves me dearly. He made me. I'm significant. You're significant in God's eyes. But when we die to ourselves, what we're doing is we say, God is the one who makes the decisions. He's the one who makes the choices. In other words, when I become a disciple, I say goodbye to being in control. 
God's the one that's in control. So we got relationships, we got self, and then finally we have good old possessions. Look down at verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, say it out loud with me again one last time, cannot be my disciples. Give up everything. So does that mean um, I'm supposed to sell everything I have and go live in a commune? Is that what Jesus is talking about here, right? So it's interesting the phrase give up literally means to bid farewell, to say goodbye. All right, so I need you to reach into your purse or to your pocket and get out your wallet, your billfold, get out some money. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you give it to me, or a credit card. Come on, everybody, you're supposed to do that. You're sitting there like I didn't, even online, you're supposed to do this, all right? Get out your billfold, your wallet. You can get a credit card out. You can get out. I've got a whole $4 in my billfold. I am wealthy beyond means right here. This is all I'm really trustworthy with, actually. So it's like four bucks. Take out something, hold it up in front of you. There you go. And then what I want you to do, hold it out like this, and I want you to wave goodbye to it, all right? Wave goodbye. Come on, Terry, wave goodbye to it. You can do it. There you go. Wave goodbye to your mom. I mean, Jesus is simply saying, if I can't wave goodbye to all the stuff that I have, I cannot be one of his disciples. I mean, that's a challenging concept, this thought. In other words, it's this idea or this thought about who owns the stuff that I have. Now, I, I thought Jesus talked and thought it was okay for us to have nice things, right? And, and it really, Jesus doesn't condemn us for having nice things. He always is warning us, though, that nice things can have us. You know, if if my vehicle is more important to me than trying to help other people out or taking care of my lawn than that crazy kid who keeps riding his bike across it or, you know, if I want to make sure everything's just right in my cubicle at work and then that person comes along and messes it up, you know, it's, is that is the stuff in my life. Is it so important to me that I can't let go of it? Do I view it as my stuff or do I view it as God's stuff. I mean, to be a disciple is to be willing to give it up for him. And I love the concept that, you know, Jesus doesn't have fine print. I mean, if you really wanted people to follow you and not be, you know, kind of bothered by it, this would be the stuff you would take and put in the fine print, the tiny print, you know, way at the bottom. Jesus doesn't do it. He puts it out front and center right in front of us. Now, sometimes fine print is a little bit easy, uh, interesting. April Fool's Day 2010, Game Station in England added, just on that one day, April Fool's Day 2010, a, a new clause in the agreement that if you were going to play the game that day, you had to uncheck the box if you didn't agree to that particular clause. And the clause was it would grant Game Station a non-transferable option to claim for now and forevermore your immortal soul. And there was a lot of people who didn't uncheck that box. And so Game Station, I guess, has their immortal soap because you didn't read the fine print. Jesus isn't interested in half-hearted followers. I mean, if you notice the very first phrase in this, Jesus, he's got this huge crowd of people and, and suddenly he starts turning the pressure up on them. Jesus is not interested in a huge crowd. Jesus is interested in fully committed followers of him, you and me. 
And so he gives us three more pictures here. The first one is this building a tower. Maybe it's a house there, right? Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus isn't interested in people beginning and not being able to finish. And then there's going to war, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In other words, you better pay attention to the resources that you have. Can you go to war? Pay attention to it. Think it through. But the most challenging one is the picture of salt. Verse 34, salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Useless is the one, Jesus is saying. Just like salt that becomes useless is the one who tries to be a disciple without coming to terms with the conditions. And one of the things that's hard for me in this passage is it really sounds like somehow I've got to be perfect, right? It's like I can't make any mistakes. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be, you know, full-blown on, ready to do this no matter what is happening in my life. What about grace, Doug? Well, thankfully, God knows that, at least for me, I'm anything but perfect. But God's goal is not for me or you to be perfect, God's goal in our life is to transform us, to help us to become the people that he has in mind. In other words, God's picture of you and what you can become and me and what I can become is so far grander than anything we could dream up. Our picture of what life could become like if it's up to us pales in comparison with the picture God has in mind for us. But to transform requires some tearing down. For God to do some renovation, he's got he's to get rid of some stuff in our life. To, for God to be able to do that kind of work in our life, some things have to go by the wayside. We have to be willing to let go of those things and rebuilding that God does in our life. Most of the time, it's not all that pleasant. You know, most of the time, it's really challenging. It can be very, very difficult for us. And so the question becomes, will I trust God? Because for every single one of us in this room, there's at least one area that's coming to your mind that you're thinking to yourself, wow, that, that, that's where God's talking to me today. And I'm not sure I can do that. But I know what it is, right? In my mind, it's, it's, it's there. It's front and center for me even today. And so that comes to our mind and we're confronted with this question, will I trust God? So one of the measures we use around here to help us know, am I becoming a disciple? Am I moving from distracted to focus is that measure of trusting God. And we use this you know, question, am I saying yes to God in every area of my life? That's a hard question. But when I 
can every day get up and say yes to God in another area of my life, even that difficult area you're thinking of right now. That puts my trust in God and allows him to work. But you know what? When I say, no thanks, God, not right now, I'm getting in the way of his transforming work and power. I'm the one who's stopping the renovation in my life. God wants to do that for me. God wants to do that for you. But something keeps getting in the way of our life. So I want to encourage you to um, take a moment here. Brandy's going to share something with us by video, a very personal story for her. But it's a picture of how what God wants to do for all of us is to bring a sense of rescue. And over these next six weeks, we're going to be looking together at how God can do that work in our life. And so listen as Brandy shares with us right now. So behind me, you guys are seeing um, the home that my family moved into when I uh, started fourth grade after my dad retired from the military and we moved a lot in Oklahoma. Um, it's across the street diagonally from us. And uh, my, we lived there, my mom lived there until about two years ago when she sold it. And what you can't see and what you might not know is that behind me there, that was a prison. I had several awful things happen to me there and that held me captive for a very long time. You know, we look at prisons as um, big tall fences with barbed wire and uh, cells and brick and cement, but that's not always what prisons are. Prisons can be a house, they can be our minds, they can be people, they can be so much more. And some of you guys are struggling in your own prisons right now. And I was desperate when I was in this house for a rescue. I was so desperate and, and just wanted it so badly. And we were going to church when I was living in this house. I was hearing God's word. I was hearing the truth. Didn't matter. I wanted a rescue, but I didn't want it from Jesus. I sought it out in other ways. I was looking all around me in the world for different things and relationships and people in, in um, parties in various things. And they weren't things that were, they were temporary rescues or they weren't any relief at all. It, the only rescue, the relief and the rescue that came, came from Jesus finally when I had looked everywhere else and I had nowhere else to turn but up. And then I finally had the rescue. And I encourage you guys to just, to not be like me. And because I know that there's many right now that are in desperate need of a rescue. And don't seek out the things around you. Seek up, look up to Jesus and seek him because that's where the true rescue is going to be. It's not going to be in things. It's not going to be in people. It's going to be in Jesus. And, you know, sometimes we think of the rescue that occurs is through accepting Jesus into our heart. And yeah, that's a rescue. But sometimes we remember that we're in need of rescue time and time again. I can tell you right now, I'm a minister and I, the beginning of this year, was in desperate need of a rescue that I didn't even know I needed. And on February 5th, Jesus rescued me of the beginning of this year through somebody else. They, I was trapped in a pattern, a pattern that began when I was living in this prison, in this house behind me. And um, I didn't even realize I was trapped. And um, it took somebody else pointing that out to me and opening up, me opening up to them and then pointing that out to me. And it began this new level of healing that has been really great to see and experience. And I'm so joyful for that, that Jesus 
rescued me once again. And there's so many of you right now that are in desperate need of a rescue. So I really encourage you as we enter into the series of Seek and Be Rescued, don't seek out for other things to rescue you because the only true rescue for you is Jesus. Seek him, sit at his feet and listen to him. Seek him out and hear what he has to say to you. Open up your heart to him, pour out your heart to him and seek him so that you can receive your rescue. I know that you're desperate. Trust me, I do. I've been in that desperate place. The only true rescue is through Jesus. So during the next six weeks, do yourself a favor and open up. Take the time. I promise you're not going to regret it. And seek Jesus and take hold of your rescue and choose him. Because that's what it took for me. I chose everything else, but it wasn't until I chose Jesus and sought him that I finally was able to grasp the rescue. Will you let him do his work of renewing and transforming in your heart and in your life? The hard thing about that is it, it requires a choice, right? It, requires some kind of a decision from each one of us. But to be a disciple is to say goodbye, to be an in control, and to say, Lord, what do you need me to do today? So what, what is that area for you? What, is, what does that look like? What is that place? Jesus wants to rescue you. Maybe it's in regard to a relationship Maybe it's in regard to your own self and ego and pride. Maybe it's in regard to your stuff. So I want to take that second parable and I want to change it just a little bit. So you're going to have to give me a little bit of grace on this, okay? So the parable is about two kings heading at each other for war, right? So you got King Jesus in one coming this way and then you got King Doug here or whatever your name happens to be, right? Okay? And so the conflict is coming, and it's inevitable. It's going to happen, right? Someday that conflict between us and Jesus is coming. And so what do you do? Well, you look at the resources you have, right? So, Doug, I look at the resources I have, and if I'm honest, and sometimes we have a hard time being honest, if I'm honest, then I say, my resources are pathetic. I got nothing. And then I look at the resources of Jesus, and they are immense. They are immeasurable. He's got so many resources, it's not even a close contest. And so I've got to make a decision, right? Before Jesus eventually comes to this earth, I've got to make a decision. Am I going to send out and ask for terms of peace here, or am I just going to let the inevitable conflict come? But then I learn, as I send out that delegation, that the terms of peace for Jesus are, I've got to give up everything. I've got to hate my family. Everything belongs to him. In fact, i got to be willing to give up my only, own life to Jesus Christ. In other words, I lose all control of my life. And that doesn't sound like very good terms to me, right? Jesus gets everything and I get absolutely nothing. But then I hear and learn that Jesus isn't coming 
to conquer me. He's not coming to condemn me. He's coming to rescue me. But the only way I can be rescued is by surrendering everything I have to Jesus Christ. So what does that rescue look like for you today? Because to be a disciple, it's either this radical partnership with Jesus Christ, or I'm in rebellion against God. He wants all of us.